Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now we re-ran an entire episode from the very earliest days. This week, the fifth Risk episode ever to appear in the world from November 30th of 2009. It's an episode we call Awful Jobs. Father of soul won't be taking no risks today, but you and I are a different story, friend, because this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. That was Alec Gross with the music. I'm Kevin Allison, and today we're digging into stories about awful jobs, the most regrettable things we did for cash. Horror stories of a sort. We have a whole slew of popular comedians and writers on the episode today, dropping the act and getting real. We start with Tracy Rallin. She works behind the scenes at NBC and on the scene at The Moth and The Liar Show. Now, I really shouldn't call her story this, but I kind of do call it Old Three Eyes. But the question is, what will you call it when you tell all your friends to check it out? Hmm? It was game show week at the Howard Stern Show, which meant one thing, that I would be dressing up strippers. 
My job on Howard's first TV show was technically props and costumes, but really, I was a stripper wrangler. And if I wasn't dressing them up as nurses and Nazis, I was buying pogo sticks and trampolines for them to jump on during commercial breaks. I'm so glad I got that degree in broadcast journalism. This particular week, we weren't going to do that. We wouldn't be doing stripper family feud or hooker prices, right? No, we were going to be doing What's My Line with Arlene Francis and Kitty Carlisle Hart, two geriatric fixtures from the early days of television. And What's My Line became What's My Secret in the world of Howard Stern. And Kitty and Arlene had to figure out the secret of our mystery guest. And this time it was going to be mystery guests. And for our version, they were going to be twin sisters joined at the head. So the talent booker got a hold of Kitty and Arlene, no problem. And then she found a pair of conjoined twins like two hours away in Pennsylvania. And on taping day, we waited for this pair of sisters joined at the top of the head and who walked bent at the waist and otherwise looked normal. But in our world of elephant boys and triple D implants... Normal could mean anything, and we were not prepared for the Chappelle sisters. Lori Chappelle is an average-sized woman, and she's joined at the face to her tiny misshapen sister, Reba, who she pushes around on this modified bar stool. And they don't even face the same direction. They face opposite directions, and they share an eye. So as the sisters, you know, spilled out of the limo, the entire building just gasped because this time those clowns at the Stern Show had gone way too far. And an emergency meeting was called, taping was put on hold, and they stowed the sisters away in my office. And so we're surrounded by nurses' outfits and, and taxidermy, and, and we're waiting for hours. And the girls started to get antsy, and I'm attempting small talk. And it turns out we do not have a whole lot in common. So I'm like, hey, I've, I've got a sister. And a muffled sort of voice came from the back of Lori's head. And it was Reba. And she had to use the bathroom. And so I tried whisking them down the back hallway. But with two attached women and a bar stool whose wheels have not seen oil... In a long time, there there would be no whisking. So we're lurching and we're clattering down to the ladies' room, and it's just on the other side of the open newsroom door. And I would have given anything to trade those girls for a cart full of sex dolls. And eventually, it was decided that having these two sisters joined at the face, sharing an eye on the show, would push even our very loose boundaries of good taste. I had to break the news as the official twin wrangler. I had to break the news to the girls. And Reba started to cry. And not only was she missing her big, big break as a country singer, but she had used her last vacation day to come to the show. Yet her sister had days left over. Howard's days at, at Channel 9 ended not long after that, and we all scattered to our next jobs, and Lori and Reba went on the Jerry Springer show and finally got their big break in television, and my career kind of took me farther and farther away from journalism, and every once in a while I would think back to this, this job you know, that changed everything and wonder what would have happened if I hadn't taken the job with Howard Stern. You know, would I be the next Christiane Amanpour? You know, would I be somewhere reporting the news, the important news of the day. And as a good journalist, I kept a journal and I wrote in it every day uh, when I was with Howard, those two years. And every entry just about is um, about the cute marketing guy I had a crush on. The scoop of my lifetime was really unfolding and I was looking at the cute guy down the hall. So it turns out I'm an awesome uh, prop getter. I'm a very talented stripper wrangler, but as a journalist, I kind of suck. The queen of diamonds, she ain't cheap. The queen of spades will bury you deep. The queen of hearts leaves a chill. Queen of clubs is out dancing still. I put my heart out on the table. 
And if I had a crystal ball, believe it or not, I still would call with everything to lose. Everything to lose. With everything to lose, I risk it all. That's Marshall York and his guitar. And now we're going to take a look back at one of the Risk live shows in New York where Jeff Zimmerman told this next story. You may have heard Jeff on This American Life, and you can always find him at andiamnotlying.com. Here's his story, Kangaroo Killer. The first thing you need to understand is that uh, kangaroos are really cute and furry, but they're total pests in Australia. They're like... I'm glad to get a laugh now because you're going to really enjoy this. Uh, they're like deer times a million in Australia, and they can destroy hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of crops in a single night. And uh, people eat kangaroo meat in Australia, but more relevant to this story is that dogs eat a lot of kangaroo meat in Australia because they sell it for pet food. And um, while people eat the meat, it's it's not like a delicacy, but the kangaroo shooter I worked with put it this way. where He's like... Mate, I grew up poor, grew up out in the bush, and we wanted meat. We fucking ate roo. And I know this because I fucking killed it. And I worked with a kangaroo shooter in rural Australia harvesting kangaroos that we sold for dog meat. And, um, you know, I, I took any cash job I could get. I was an illegal alien over there. I'd kind of flown over there for this girl, and that was all really sweet and beautiful and cool until the money ran out. And then, as you all know, that shit gets ugly. <laughs> and uh, I did anything I could, so I kind of found out about this guy. I got a job with him. He was arthritic, and he couldn't really lift the kangaroos up or to hang upside down from the cage around the truck as we drove around the bush, so he hired me. And my job consisted of... Uh, standing on the back of this truck as it trundled around the outback and I had a spotlight and I'd sort of spot them and freeze these kangaroos uh, where it's just like a freeze beam. It's totally illegal to hunt deer that way here but you can do it all day long and uh, all night long in Australia. And uh, he j- flipped down the windshield and was, while staying behind the wheel, swing a rifle out, shoot the kangaroo through the head and I'd run up to it and grab it by the tail or back foot, uh, drag it up to the truck and then um, we'd field dress it and so I'd chop its paws off with a machete and uh, he'd chop off the head, split the heart open, we'd cut off the tail because fucking booms make a beautiful soup out of this, you can sell them for a dollar piece and um, then we'd uh, put a meat hook through the Achilles tendon and one, two, three, up you go, hang it from this cage and I learned that if you pick a kangaroo up by the balls it's like nature's perfect handle because it'll stretch but never break and um, the first time that Craig showed me how to chop a kangaroo's paws off, he was really patient, and he showed me how to sort of position the wood, pl- wood block under the paws, and you line up with the machete, and you just want to swing right through, right? Just chopping the dirt under the paws, right? And I said, okay, and I did it, and I just whiffed it, and I missed really bad, and I buried the knife in the dirt, and I just, you know... You're probably looking at me, this dude, like white dude in a suit, and thinking he's probably awesome at being a kangaroo shooter's <laughs> assistant, and you're wrong. So I, um, I pull out, and I kind of went for it again, and I kind of whiffed it, and I just finally am just like, it's gory. I'm just hacking away at these paws, trying to get them off, and the blood is flying everywhere, all over my face and chest, and and him, and finally I got it, and I looked up, and I was like, yeah, I've never done this before. You know, isn't this great? And he and he says. Uh, uh, you did, you did, you did it right, son. You did good. Hey, except I could do it faster with a fucking toothbrush, right? We're gonna be out here all night. You fucking up the tools. Let's get a wriggle on. And I was like, okay. Note to self: get better at this. But it's really, really hard to do that. I mean, I'm looking at these kangaroos, and I was just like, you know, they can't help that they're overpopulated. You know, they. They can't help that they get all this weird anthrax they pass on to sheep or whatever. They they're just kind of cute and fuzzy, and it's and it's really hard to chop their paws off efficiently when they're looking at you with these big brown dead eyes, and it's even harder when they're looking at you from over here because Craig's already chopped the head off and thrown it out in the dust. <laughs> so that was tough, and um, there was other hard stuff. Um, 
Craig is this great big 65 year old uh, Aussie guy and he just looked like a like you'd taken a leather handbag and stretched it over a sack of rice <laughs> and um, he was you know just full of just little he just chunks of crocodile dundee in his stool you know he was just tough as nothing else he'd been shooting kangaroos since he was nine and he was going to be shooting kangaroos until he dropped dead and I was thinking about fucking killing him myself because he was he didn't have a you know his heart had gone kind of small and calloused um we i there's a difficult thing that i discovered that my second night where you you put up the you hang up sometimes you have to shoot female kangaroos and you hang them up and there's a couple of them hanging there from the cages we're driving around and we'd stop to to gut them and um i'd look in their pouches it'd be kind of writhing around <laughs> and sometimes little feet would stick out and uh just like I'm just I'm gonna go get really busy on the other side of the truck for a moment see how this plays out and then he reached up and he grabbed one by the by the tail uh, a baby kangaroo out of the pouch by the tail and back legs and he looks at it and throws it and he goes go on off you get and it just hops off howling into the night and I just said oh is that is that what you do with the babies because that is that a thing I can I'm thinking I can totally do that like I, I can kind of participate more and he said well, it's what you do. If they're big enough, they can hop off, and uh, another mom will raise them. She'll adopt them. But if she's, you know, if they've got to be on the tit, right, a, a, a female will never nurse a roo that she didn't give birth to. So, like, this little fella right here has got to go. And he just goes, wham, and knocks its brains out on a rock like a furry blackjack and just picks it up. And I said, really? <laughs> guess that's that's how we do this uh so the next time it was time to stop and gut kangaroos and get rid of the babies i thought well i just sort of sight out the kind of biggest looking pouch i could find and pick that one up and i could look like i was letting the, the ones go and look like i was helping and he could do all the the other stuff and um so i picked one up and i was like hey is this i can look let that's this one go right and right then, and then it doubles up and flips up and it bites my arm like real, real hard. And I screamed like the littlest girl that has ever screamed. I was just like, ah! and and then it screamed and it just goes and hops off into the dark. And he just looked at me. And at this point, we're both, it's about 110 degrees in the middle of the night. We're both covered in blood and dirt. We're not wearing shirts and we're both holding machetes. He's like, right, you have fucked up mr sensitive you just think you're friends of the fucking animals right that kangaroo is gonna go off and it's gonna starve in a fucking week's time and if it's lucky it's gonna starve in front of its fucking friends because they're not gonna feed it and that's all because of you mr sensitive i hope you're fucking happy right you can't and i was just like oh boy uh <laughs> It's weird. I, it was a unique talent he had where, like, just when you thought you couldn't feel worse about yourself, <laughs> he found a way. And he was just like, you're just fucking used to this kind of this, right? I'll take care of it from here on out. So he, like, gave me what I wanted, but made me feel like shit about it. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gift, really. And um, <laughs> I wanted to, you know, explain all this, explain where I was coming from to him, but we were on a one million acre ranch uh in the outback and there were only two other people living on it and they were on holiday so it was just him and me and we had like a giant drum full of diesel fuel and a giant giant drum full of regular gas and some food and water and he had the keys and knew how to navigate the dirt tracks to get home so even if i was to say take my machete and just fucking open his throat up real quick uh i wouldn't have known how to drive home australians also drive on the left and that's very dangerous for americans behind the wheel <laughs> So I was just like, I gotta stick this out. I gotta stick this out. The only way through, the only way out of this thing is through. And I just took it all and just balled it up in this little small thing and put it down in my stomach. And I was just like, just breathe. Just don't talk. Just breathe. Just do what he says. And the next night we're out hunting uh, feral goats because we were kind of low on kangaroos and um, we're kind of trolling around the trash dump of the of the um, farm. And there's this big family of massive goats and goats when they go feral out there just look like this big white Chewbacca dreadlock thing and th they get huge and mean and uh, there's this female goat there and she's eating some something I don't I don't know what it was anymore but 
uh, she's eating it and her kids are kind of standing around and he just levels and he's like duck son and I duck and he just out the window just blam blasted the goat and nicks it moved its head at the last second he would he was an incredibly good shot but it moved his head at the last second it just nicked the spine so it paralyzed her from the waist down and all of a sudden her back legs go out she's just standing there on her front legs and screaming and screaming and it's the most gut-wrenching scream and her kids and since they're goats they're kind of dumb and they're taking a while to figure this out and they're sniffing around they're like mom i think i don't think something's entirely right with mom what do you suppose oh god what do you think and at this point my masculinity was kind of at an all-time low <laughs> before this happened and then i just all of the frustration and the terror and the fear and the blood and everything just i just start bawling and i was just like oh god no it's gonna be okay guys and i got out of the truck and like my tears are making wet tracks through the like dirt scab that's on my face you know and i i'm just like go on go on. i don't want you to see this and um and i can hear this like shing 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 because he's back there sharpening up the knife and i'm chasing off still just <laughs> and then i do that thing where you hit a long tone when you're really crying it's like <laughs> And he's like, shing, 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 shing. and then I heard that scream just go and gurgle. And I turned around, and he's sitting there grinning, and he's just shit slit the mom's throat. And she falls. And I'm, st I thought the the like crying gas tank was empty, but we hit the reserve tank, and I was just like, ah, and and at the, but the whole time I'm still moving because some part of me is like, just keep getting through this. So I'm crying, and I pick grab her by kind of a fold of the stomach in the back leg and we're like one two three and I, we hang her upside down and he's just he's going to gut her with his knife and he's just like you just fucking think that meat lies itself down on the bag of bun don't you i've seen you eat and you like meat mate and you just got to understand it's just about a little bit more than like saving the cute things and letting the ugly things die right Cows are fucking cute too. This is just fucking life. This is how we do it. You can't, right? Fucking come out here, think you've got a good fucking story to tell your friends back at home. You can't, right? Tell all your fucking little computer friends about all how fucking tough you are, right? Fucking cut. Fucking useless cut. And right then he just goes, and he's licking his shoulder and spitting. And it's because while he was cutting and just calling me a cunt over and over and over, the the this white bulb begins to emerge from the slit he's creating in the goat's dead body. And while he's like, fucking useless cunt, right there he pokes that bulb with the knife and it explodes. And the goat apparently really had to go to the bathroom before he shot it. And all this hot, dead goat piss flies into his open mouth. And I was just like, yes. Yes. All those tears just like fly backwards. And I'm just like, yes. And he's like, fucking, what are you, what are you, can you have a small thing at, huh? And I was like, well, you know, Craig, you can, um, you know, just, you can keep a lot of goat piss out of your mouth if you just shut it sometimes, you fucking cunt. <laughs> and uh, he just looked at me. He's just like this. He's like, get in a truck. And we didn't talk for three or four hours. And during that time, I just became a killing machine. I'm like freezing, I'm tapping, he's shooting, I'm dragging, we're butchering, we're just done. And we get back to the camp and we had we kept them in this giant diesel powered meat locker in the mm -hmm. desert. And we're tagging them and, and like throwing the carcasses into the, into the freezer. And finally he's like, you know, you're getting kind of good at this. Uh, what happened? And I was just like, look, man, the more of these things we kill, the quicker we go home. And he just starts laughing, and he gave me what I needed really, really badly, which was a beer. And then he gave me 11 more things I needed really, really badly. And we just got shit-faced, like waist-deep in dead kangaroos in a diesel meat locker in the middle of the desert. And I just got to tell him what an absolute fucking asshole he was. And he was, he was just roaring, because I'm like imitating him, and I was like, this is you, right? Fucking fat fuck talking about <laughs> Oh, I've had it so fucking tough, <laughs> pity me. And I was just like, you just suck to work for him. And he's just he's screaming with laughter. And then finally he's like, look, are you hungry? Because I'm fucking hungry. And he, and he saws off a couple of goat steaks off of the goat from earlier, and he fries them up in the skillet, and we're eating them. And we're just sitting there. And uh, he asked, how the fuck did you get out here? And I said, well, I came out here, for, I flew over here from America to meet this girl and 
ran out of money. He said, you flew all the way from America to meet somebody that you met on the fucking internet? And I was like, yeah. And he said, that's, you fucking, you pussy, but you fucking tough. <laughs> and he's like, that's right. And I said, well, how'd you, well, how do you do this? And he said, well, my wife ran off with, uh, with the kids and all of our money when the kids were little. And um, I just, we shot kangaroos on all their school holidays. We just went out Easter, we're out shooting roos. Christmas, we're shooting roos. And uh, I don't have any savings, I'm gonna die out here, but they always had new clothes and new books and the kids never made fun of them for being poor. And that's just, that's what's important to me is keeping the family together. And I just looked at him, we just, we just looked at each other for a while. And he said, and so, with that in mind, I've got a job on uh, in about a month's time I could really use the help. So give it a think. Thank you. gave us that intriguing little tune. Go to airforants.com to learn more. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's all well and good, but can't anyone on this damn show do a Julia Child impersonation? Well, keep your knickers on, because now we bring you William Mullen, a very funny man with his story, Fishy Fish. So I had just graduated from Boston University in the beginning of the 90s with an oh-so-valuable degree of fine arts and a not-so-good economy. And so I decided, like every other performer wannabe, to go wait on tables. And I decided to really focus on the most famous restaurant in Boston, which was called Legal Seafoods. Rumors had it that there were waiters making thousands a night there, and I was like, awesome. So I tried and tried and tried. They accepted my application, and they got me in. But I wasn't hired yet until I passed a week and a half course called Scrod School. It was a very tough course, and it was run by a head waiter um, named Christy. And she was very, very gruff and linebacker-like, what most people would probably refer to as a lesbian. She'd been at Legal Seafood since it started in a shack. She'd be like, rainbow trout, how's it prepared? Baked and Cajun, all right. And she made sure we passed the test. Even though I graduated from Scrod School, I was not a all-star waiter. I didn't care about it, I, I didn't really like it, and I hated memorizing the specials that the chef would prep us with before we go out onto the floor. So I would just find myself approaching tables, starting to say the special, forgetting the special, and completely bullshitting the customer. Of course, they would be disappointed when they would get their special, and it was nothing like I described. And then I would say, the chef messed up, but this is pretty good. One day during a lunch shift, because that's all they gave me, because I was such a weak waiter, I saw a large party walk in, and there was, right off the bat, a buzz started to come across the restaurant. And I looked over, and there was a very tall woman with a lot of short friends surrounding her. And you got a closer look at her, and you noticed it was Julia Child. And the hostess grabbed her menus and started leading this party to my table. I started panicking. I started walking to her table, shaking. I went there, and I said the specials without messing up. And it was a fairly easy and comfortable group at the table. They just reeled off their orders. I took them rainbow trout, the haddock, halibut, arctic char. And then there was a pause when I got the Julia Child. How fresh is your Jonah crab claw? Now I knew about this item on the menu. I've never seen it, and I had no idea what it was. But we were legal seafoods. Everything's fresh. So I answered it a nice leave it to beaver style. It's super fresh. Obviously, that wasn't the answer she was looking for, so she paused, looked down again, and she asked me, Do you have bay scallops? 
Now I started freaking because I had no idea if we had base gallops, but I'd be damned if I was going to say no to Julia Child. So I said, we certainly do. And then she said, I would like it prepared with Indian sweet paprika butter. Certainly, I answered. So I bring the order back into the kitchen where um, the whole staff was waiting eagerly to see what Julia Child had ordered. The restaurant manager took my order, handed it to the chef. Chef handed it to line cook. Line cook started yelling out the orders. Bluefish, haddock, arctic char, rainbow trout. What the fuck? Bay scallops? Who the fuck ordered bay scallops? Um, Miss Child? <laughs> we haven't had bay scallops since the 1800s. They've been fished out since the turn of the century. And so the restaurant manager saw what was happening. So he took me and he goes, listen, William, you have to swallow your pride. Go out there and tell Julia Child she has to order something else. I felt completely humiliated. Right when I was about to approach her, Christy, the gruff head server, pushes me aside and explains to Julia Child that I misinformed her and that I was new and in training which was a lie. Julia Child then looked at me with the most disapproving motherly look someone could ever receive. Then she looked back to Christy. I'll have the Jonah Crab Claw. Obviously disappointed, she bowed her head and then carried on the conversation with her friends. This is Risk. I'm Kevin Allison. Jessica Delfino has our next story. Jessica does a show called Skits and Tits at the Bowery Poetry Club in New York. But don't come expecting poems. Jessica's story is going, going, gone. I have had every kind of job you can possibly imagine. I think the most demented job that I ever had was being a go-go dancer. My mom was working full-time and she needed me to babysit my sisters. I have five younger sisters and she needed me to watch them. But I had my own plan and my plan was that I wanted to go to college. And more specifically, I decided that I wanted to go to art school and I was dead set on going to art school. I would do anything. So I devised a plan. My plan was I would get a night job. So um, one day, I was looking through the newspaper and the classifieds, and I saw it there, just, you know, naked as day. Earn money, go-go dancing. I called the number, and uh, a woman with a very raspy voice answered, Hello! And uh, I figured, you know, maybe I had the wrong number, but no, I had the right number. And uh, she told me to meet her at her office that night. The woman was an older woman, and her office was her apartment, and it was full of felines. Um, when I stepped inside, the smell of cats and cigarette smoke almost changed my mind. It was almost enough for me to say, I can't go through with it, but I stuck it out. I was driven. So um, she asked me to strip and show her some of my moves so that she could be sure that I knew what I was doing. So to the sound of complete silence, except an errant cat meow, I stripped off of my clothes and uh, kind of swayed about like a confused new age dancer and uh, just uh, stripped down to mismatched lingerie. She clapped while she coughed. I was hired. One of my first jobs, I remember, I remember it very clearly, it was a place aptly named Miss Kitty's. I was surrounded by uh, like rotund, rugged ruffians who, you know, didn't even know where they were. They'd been there for hours drinking. They made a, you know, a pattern of coming there straight after work, spending their whole paycheck at this go-go bar. It was like kind of an obsession for them. And uh, you know, the women who were there, life had not been kind to them either. I was really scared to be there, but I just, I really wanted, I wanted the money. You know, I wanted those Benjamins. I wanted, well, more accurately, I wanted those George Washingtons those singles and uh, I got a lot of them and I got a lot of attention too because I was one of the few women there who actually had like all my teeth and you know I was I was young I had this kind of energy and this innocence about me and I called myself Eva 
You know, they were like, what's, what's the deal with this like 19-year-old Eva? You know, what is she doing here? She has no scars. But at the end of my first night, I had a huge stack of singles. I had a huge stack of, of clammy ones, and I'd raked in $250. So I was hooked. Um, I danced secretly for months in fear. I was worried that if my mom found out, she would, uh, well, I just, I really had no idea what she would do. Um, that's why I just told her I was bartending. I figured, you know, that I, I just, I, I lied. I feel bad about lying, but I just, I felt guilty. I didn't want her to know this is what I was doing, but I, I wanted that money and I knew that this was how I could get it. So one night, she was smart. She called the bar that I said that I was working at as a bartender and she asked, is Jessica there? And they were baffled. They were like, Jessica, Jessica. No, no, no Jessica's work here. She was like, are you sure? And they were like, oh, Je you mean Eva, Eva. Oh yeah, Eva, yeah, she's here. And she was like, okay, that's all I wanted to know. So that night, um, I came home, and my mom confronted me, and she was livid. She was just steaming, and she gave me an ultimatum. Quit or move out. So, you know, the gig was up for me. I tried to explain to her that um, I was trying to save money, and I wanted to go to college, and she, like, laughed. You know, she was like, huh, save money. Like, how much money could you have possibly saved, you know? And I showed her a drawer. I pulled out my drawer full of $1 bills, $10,000 in like mostly singles. And she was floored. I thought that that would win her over to my side. I thought she'd be like, all right, way to go. Nice job. High five. But she was, she was so angry. She was like, stop dancing or move out. But, um, you know, I just, I, I did not want to stop because I had already enrolled. I had enrolled in art school and I knew I was going to need more money. So the next morning, I took my sack of singles, and I had to go. Go. You never ask, so I never tell you. Beautiful vision with some beautiful music there. Look them up on MySpace. Now, amongst friends, I sometimes use the word motherfuckers as a term of endearment. So I found it endearing to learn that Peter Aguero addresses his audiences that way. It's really kind of his trademark. So listen up, motherfuckers. Here's Peter's story. I scream, you scream. When I was 22 years old, I had an interesting summer. I was a bouncer at night, and uh, during the day I drove an Italian ice truck. It was great. Uh, the night job was cool because I got to hang out with drunks, uh, who are my people. And during the day, I got to sell happiness to children. The icy truck company I worked for was called Super Cool Italian Ice, and that's cool with a K. And it was just a simple job. You drive around four miles an hour, and... Uh, there'd be kids and you'd just make them happy. It was nice. If I saw a kid with a broken leg, I'd just give him a free one. Uh, you could also smoke weed and no one knew because <laughs> you were in a truck driving around and there was a, a big cooler full of cooling, lovely Italian ice in the back, so dry mouth was never a problem. The company I worked for, uh, it was staffed entirely by Middle Eastern guys. Uh, there was the boss, his name was Muhammad, but he introduced himself to me as Mark. I was the only dumbass white boy college student that worked there. I came back early May before college was done, and I asked Mark if there was still a truck open for me, and he said, sure, yeah, no problem. So I called my buddy. We drove around, and we just you know had fun uh, selling ice cream for the day. We were on the boundary of the town I was working and there was a neighborhood that straddled the boundary and depending on what map you looked at uh, it was either part of Piscataway or South Plainfield and each truck was licensed for its own town you couldn't go outside that town and uh, as I was going through the tail end of the neighborhood to go back into my regular route uh, another super cool truck came by 
So I got out and I talked to him. His name was Aziz. He was about 40 years old. And he explained to me, after shaking my hand, that the neighborhood I was in was in South Plainfield. And he showed me an updated map. And, and he said, oh, you know, you shouldn't come back here anymore. This is a good neighborhood. I need to take it. I said, that's no problem, Aziz. No, no problem. So we shook hands again. I got in the truck. And my buddy was like, what was that all about? I said, ah, it was just a, a thing. When he's not around, I'll go in the neighborhood anyway. Fourth of July, 1999. I was lucky enough in Piscataway to have fireworks at the high school, so I made my way over there about 5 o'clock, and there were uh, other ice cream trucks there from Mr. Softy and Little Jimmy and Good Humor, but there were enough people, so it didn't matter. Trouble was, about 6 o'clock, another super cool truck pulls in. It says ease. I walked over, and I said, hey, man, what's going on? We talked about this a while back. I told you I wouldn't go into South Plainfield. You said you wouldn't come to Piscataway. He went to shake my hand, and I refused. He immediately uh, made a fist and punched me in the face from the driver's seat of his van. And and just then, all of a sudden, I became a wolverine. I was acting all on instinct, and I, and I went to grab his door and pull it open and pull him out, and I guess rip him apart. I don't know what I was going to do, but I, I was seeing a red mist in front of my eyes, and, and I didn't like it. When I was trying to open his door, he started reaching under his seat like he had a gun. And so I figured it wasn't worth it, so I backed away. But the cops had seen what was going on, and they came walking up and and broke everything up and kicked him out because they saw he wasn't supposed to be in the town. But five minutes later, uh, they came over and kicked me out too. Uh, just because they didn't want the problems. At the time, I had you know long hair and a gigantic, bushy Brian Wilson beard, and I didn't look like the kind of guy that they wanted around children. Uh, after the fireworks were done, I drove back to the yard, and it's 11 o'clock at night at this point, and I tell Muhammad that his boy Aziz punched me in the face, and I explained the situation. He said, did you get kicked out? I said, no, look, here, I got all this money. He said, that's good, but I have to tell you, you can't let a man get away with something like that. Next time he does it, punch him back. Now, this is my boss telling me this. So if he's telling me to punch another employee, I guess I got to do it. As I'm leaving, Aziz pulls in, and we start yelling back and forth at each other, and it, it just it all starts again. And the only thing he can really say in English is, fuck you, fat boy, fuck you. And, and I was fat and I still am, so, you know, I guess it made sense. So I get in my car and I drive away. Then something happened and I snapped. I turned around and I came back. I got out of the car. I said, I said, one way or another, old man, we finish this right now. Because apparently I'm in a Kurosawa movie. So I run over to him and, and he comes out and he starts hitting me. He's hitting me on the head. He's hitting me in the back of the head. And I look up and he's got a hammer. And he's hitting me on the forehead and the back of the head with a hammer. I didn't feel a thing. The animal took over. My dad took over. The angry man that I grew up with. The one that I tried to get rid of, the, the one that, that uh, made me quit football because it wasn't me. And I picked him up like I was Hacksaw Jim Duggan and I slammed him on the ground and he's swinging with the hammer and I tried to grab it and it, my thumb slipped in his mouth and he bit through my thumbnail and he's holding on and I'm choking him and I wanted to kill him. And I choked him until he passed out and I kept choking him. And seven guys pulled me off of him and then they, they took him by under the armpits and dragged him off into the darkness and I never saw him again. Muhammad gave me a, a Ziploc bag full of lemon ice to put on my head, and he told me to take the day off, and little did he know or I know, I'd never go back to that job again. I got in my car, and about a half mile down the road, I just started crying. I was just crying. And one day, the best job I ever had turned into the worst job. I haven't gotten into a fight since, but when I hear ice cream truck music, the blood starts to boil. I took a risk and then I died Now I'm dead, locked inside A box in the dark and I thought I was smart But I'm not, but I'm not That's what happens when you risk That's what happens when you risk Jordan Cooper coming to us from the grave we have one more story today from the hilarious Joe Mandy, one of my favorite new comedians. He and Noah Garfinkel, another very funny young feller, host the show Totally JK at the UCB Theater in New York. Here's Joe at the Risk Live show. This story is called Dog Shit. It's 2003, and I was living in Boston. For the summer, I uh, had to catch up on credits. I went to Emerson College. I was a writing major. And uh, I made this agreement with my parents that if I lived in Boston for the summer, I had to get a summer job. 
And I told them, well, yeah, I'll try my best, but I have class two days a week, so <laughs> we'll see what I can do. And I, uh, early on in that process, I had decided that if I was going to get a job, I was only going to get a job over Craigslist because I didn't want to, like, go outside and get applications and get all sweaty, you know? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. If you guys don't know what Craigslist is, it's, like, the classified section in the newspaper, but on the Internet and only for sad assholes. <laughs> like, let's say you made some mistakes in your life and you need to get an apartment right away or a job right away or someone to pee in your mouth right away. <laughs> That's the uh, website you use. So I looked for a job, uh, you know, once a day, and nothing really caught my fancy. And then uh, about 10 or 11 days into the process, I found a posting on Craigslist under the TV video section that said, uh, it said, I need a dog-loving film student, ASAP. So I clicked on that, because I love dogs. And I said, hi, my name is Regina. I am the inventor of an exciting new dog toy. I am looking for an experienced film student to help me edit an infomercial. And then in all caps, it said, film student must love dogs. <laughs> I should also mention at this point that I was a huge pothead at the time. So I was just like constantly high. And uh, when I was high, I was just a big liar. And I wrote her back and I said I was a film student which was not true. But what was true is that I love dogs. Like, I love... I, if I was... Like, if I like dogs as much as I like kids, I'd be in prison right now. Um, like, I love dogs. I wrote her this email that was like, Hey, Regina, I'm a film student. I can help you out. Um, I have a lot of experience with dogs. Um, in fact, my parents have two dogs. We have a Rottweiler and a Beagle, but it's funny because the Beagle thinks she's the Rottweiler. The Rottweiler thinks she's the Beagle. I, like, it got really intense about my dogs and um, sent her the email. And about 10 minutes later, uh, Regina called me back, and we talked about dogs for a while. And then uh, she told me, you know, yeah, you sound perfect for the job. I think, I think you're qualified uh, to handle this infomercial project. Um, how about you meet me at my office tomorrow? And I said, sure, yeah, I can meet you on a Saturday. And I'm thinking, like, she works in, like, the financial district downtown or something. And she goes, okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to take the red line out to Alewife, which is the Boston equivalent of taking the F train out to like Coney Island. You know what I mean? It's like not so close. And so I, she goes, take the red line out to AOI. You're gonna go up the escalator and take the exit next to the Bertucci's restaurant. You're gonna turn right and walk past a bus stop until you see a bike path. Now you're gonna wanna walk down the bike path, but don't walk down the bike path. Instead, you're going to cross the street and walk up the off-ramp of a freeway halfway until you see a dirt path into the woods. Walk down that dirt path, and I'll be waiting for you in a parking lot wearing sunglasses. And I said, great. <laughs> and I hung up the phone. My friend David was standing there, and I told him, uh, my plan for the next morning and he said oh that woman's gonna murder you <laughs> and I said no she won't I'll get high first because <laughs> you know how marijuana works it makes you invincible so the next morning I got high and I uh, took the red line out to Alewife and I saw the Bertucci's exit and I followed that and I turned left and I mean and then I turned right and I past the bus stop and then I saw the bike path and I, I really did want to walk down the bike path like, she was right but I didn't I crossed the street I walked up this off ramp halfway there was a dirt path I walked down the dirt path and through the woods like there were woods and um then there was this parking lot and there was this giant woman in sunglasses in a carnival cruise lines t-shirt sitting on a bench wait she looked like Bruce Valanche without the beard. Like, she's just <laughs> this huge woman. And um, I introduced myself, and I said, Hi, I'm Joe. Nice to meet you. And she was like, Oh, it's great to meet you. Uh, let's go into my office, and we can talk about this project. And so we walk up to this door next to this giant, sprawling, one-story building with no windows. And she puts her hand up against, like, this uh, glass, and it scans her hand, and these doors slide open. And I was just like, where the fuck are we? Terminator 2? You know what I mean? 
So we walk into this building and there's no one there. It's completely empty. But we're walking through the hallways and the whole time she's explaining to me like how exciting this dog toy is and how it was made out of this material uh, that was uh, made for the military or something. And we're walking past these like empty science labs, you know, like they look like like high school, but fancier, but not much fancier. And uh, I was like, Regina, where are we? What is your work? And she goes, oh, we test products for companies that are afraid of lawsuits. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> good, I don't know what that means, but all right. And um, so as we're walking, she keeps talking about this dog toy and how it was you know, made out of this material that they worked with at the company. And as a joke, I was like, so is this like a dog toy your company's invented or is this some shady thing you're doing on the side? And she whips her head around and goes, shh, be quiet. <laughs> right? And then she unlocks the door to her office, and we go in, and she has me sit on this metal folding chair. And she goes, do you want to see the dog toy? And I said, sure, yeah, let's see it. And she really excitedly opens her desk and pulls out this foam circular pillow and puts it down on her desk. And I was like, what, what is that? She goes, there it is. It's called the Get It. See, and then she pulled out a, 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 a tennis ball, and she goes, "See what happens is you put a, your dog's favorite toy, like a tennis ball, inside the get it, and she like ripped open this like vaginal slit on the side of the pillow and put the, the tennis ball in, and she goes, and then you, your dog has to try to get it out. It's the get it. And I was like, that doesn't look like fun at all for a dog. It's like a torture device. And I was like, what was so great about that? And she goes, I'll show you. And then she opened her desk again and pulled out an ice pick. An ice pick. And just starts stabbing the shit out of this pillow. And I was like, oh, yeah, she's definitely going to murder me. Like, I'm not, I'm not getting out of here alive. No way. So she lifts up this pillow that's just, like, riddled with holes. And she's like, you see the holes? You see the holes? And I'm like, I see the holes. <laughs> yes, I do. And she puts the pillow down and she rubs it. And then lifts it up again, and their holes are gone. And I get up, and I'm like, that's the shit! Like, I was, like, so excited. I was like, I'd be happy to edit your infomercial. What am I doing here? Um, so she's like, do you want to see the footage for the infomercial? I was like, yeah, let's see it. And I'm picturing something like Billy Mays or the ShamWow guy just, like, stabbing the shit out of a pillow. Uh, but she puts, she takes a, a VHS tape out of a garbage bag and <laughs> puts it into this TV and turns it on and it's just like this grainy like America's Funniest Home Videos footage of a little dog playing with one of these pillows. And I'm like, what are we watching? And I turn again to look at Regina and she's bawling, crying. And I'm like, oh, that's her dead dog. I get it, I know what's going on here. And I'm like, I, I think I got, I got I got it. We can, you can put, you can stop this tape, you know? And so she takes the tape out and puts it back in the garbage bag. And she's like, so how long do you think this will take? A week? And I was like, yeah, a week. Week's fine. I'm not going to make this tape. You know? <laughs> and then she goes, and what about payment? What, how much do you charge? Four? Four or five? And I'm like, five? I don't know, like, 100,000? I was just like, five? Five's good. Let's just agree on five. And she's like, perfect. Um, and she hands me this garbage bag full of VHS tapes. And I leave with my life. Like, I'm just so happy I'm alive and she didn't kill me. And for the next week, I would just invite friends over and we would just get high and watch these fucking dog tapes, you know? And, like, I have no intention of it. I don't know how to edit video at all. I'm, I'm just a big liar, you know? And, uh... My plan is that, I, like, the next, you know, if she wanted me to, the next Saturday, I was just gonna go back, like, an hour early and drop the tapes off with a note that's like, sorry, my computer broke. Like, I don't know, I didn't know, I didn't really have a solid plan. But a couple of days before that, I got an email, and the email said, uh, the, the subject was, Dear Joe. And it said, Hi, Joe. My name is Estelle. I am Regina's mother. This is the first email I've ever written. <laughs> I'm sad to tell you that Regina is in the hospital with a very bad case of cellulitis. So right there, I stopped, and I opened a new tab and looked up cellulitis, and that's it's like flesh-eating disease. Um... Her doctors say she will be in the hospital for two weeks. Do you mind holding on to your infomercial until she's released? God bless you, Estelle. So I read that email, and I just, like, this sudden, like, wave of guilt comes over me, and I'm like, fuck. I have to make an infomercial now. <laughs> like, I have to actually do this. 
So for the next week and a half, like I can't, I would go downtown to the Emerson Film Lab and like lie and say I was a film student and like I slowly taught myself how to use Final Cut Pro and I would get high in the bathroom and just like just like really focus on that and um and I learned over the, the next few days that like I really like Final Cut Pro and I like really like this infomercial like, where it was working on and I kind of forgot there was a woman in a hospital in Arlington, Massachusetts like her, like with flesh eating disease. I was just like, yeah, this video is hilarious. So I was just like really focused on this video and uh, when it was finally done, that Saturday I was supposed to meet up with her again. I went back to school and I, uh, I burned one copy for Regina and six copies for myself. <laughs> and I had to, because it was school property, I had to like delete the whole file from the school computer. And I took the train out to Alewife and walked down the, through the woods to her office. And <laughs> Regina's standing there and she looks kind of sick and, and kind of pale. And she's got these like weird bandages on her arm. And I hand her the tape, and at that point, I'm just like, you know what? This is gratis. Just take the tape. I'm fine. You don't have to give me any money or anything. And she goes, oh, well, I want to show you. I want to see the tape. Let's go back to my apartment. And I was like, no, we shouldn't do that. She's like, I insist. So we get into our convertible Miata, which is hilarious. And <laughs> we're driving my like 20 minutes to her apartment. And as we're driving, I know it's like she's got these, like, wet bandages around her arm. And I'm like, so what's up with your bandages? And she's like, oh, I have to wear these bandages for the rest of my life. And I was like, no, no, you don't. No, you don't. Please don't say that. And we get pull up to this house on the top of a hill. And we get out. And we walk to the front door. And the front door says, beware of dog, owner. And I was like, mm. And um, we walk in. And we walk into this uh, living room with these two elderly people. And Regina's like, Mom, Dad, it's Joe, the boy who made my infomercial. And then Estelle gets up, and she's like, I wrote you an email. And I was like, yes, yes, you did. And then I look at her father, and it's this like, old man on a, in a recliner. He's got like a nebulizer because he's got emphysema or something. And they're watching Judge Judy under this giant crucifix. And I was just like, no, <laughs> what am I doing here? And... Um, and then Regina's like, let's go down to my apartment, which was the basement. And uh, as we're walking down the stairs to her basement apartment, uh, there's these giant framed charcoal m murals of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And I'm like, what's, what are these? What, what, what's up with that? And she goes, oh, my brother drew those. He died in a car accident last year. And I was just like, no, <laughs> why is this the saddest? And... Um, <laughs> We sit down on our couch, and I give her the DVD, and she puts on the infomercial, and as it starts to play, I realize, oh, fuck, this is the worst thing ever made. Like, I forgot that this is the, just a joke, and I'm, like, really worried she's going to hate it, but after, like, 30 seconds, I see that she's, like, kind of grooving to the rap music, you know, and she's just like, yeah, this is great, and she's so excited about the tape that she runs upstairs to get her parents before it's even over uh, to have them come downstairs and watch it. And uh, as it's finishing up, it's playing just for me. And I realized at the very end, I had put in a typo. And I mistakenly called it the grab it and not the get it. And like, at that point, I couldn't change it. Like it was deleted from the school. And I was just like, fuck, oh my god, she's going to kill me. Like She's actually going to murder me now that I've made this mistake. So her parents come downstairs. And there's this big production. And they sit down next to me on the couch. And her dad's got this thing in, her, in his mouth. And, we start the tape over and it's playing and they're all clapping along to this rap music and I just feel terrible because I can feel the typo coming up. I see it coming, you know? And it's this moment of pure desperation. I turn around, it was like a, like a fucking Bugs Bunny cartoon. I point to one of the murals and I go, hey, is that Jesus? Is that, is that what Jesus looks like? And they all turn around and look and they miss the typo. <laughs> And uh, it's just so sad. And the tape ends, and they're like, very good. You're such a good editor. And I was like, yeah, well, that's what I do. <laughs> and her parents go back upstairs, and Regina goes, okay, well, I'm, I'm so excited about this. Thank you so much. Um, so what did we say, four or five? And I was like, well, five. We said five. She goes, perfect. I'll be right back. And she leaves, goes into her bedroom, and comes back with five get-its. <laughs> that was... <laughs> my payment and I was like you know what I deserve that that's fine that's fine uh, well thank you so much you guys
offer risk today. Check out Joe Mandy's dog toy video at joemandy.com. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our story editors are Lee Manansala, Jeff Mersel, and Andy Croner. Our associate producers are Timothy Meehan, Emily Altman, and Madison Perry. There'll be more live shows in January, more podcasts every other Tuesday. And remember what the Portuguese say about risk. Dogs that have been bitten by snakes fear sausages. Jeff Merkel, er, fuck, I did it again. Mersel, right? Mersel. Mersel? Do we just want to back up? We would. <laughs> fuck. Awesome.